This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. This week in our 256th episode, we're covering the first day of SVP for our news segment. What a day it was. It was crazy. There was so much news that Sabrina and I had to split up and we each basically covered half of it. There's a lot going on. And we also interviewed Dr. Thaisa Rodriguez who had a really great poster about teaching kids evolution through paleo art in Brazil. And of course, we have a dinosaur of the day, and this week it's Coloradosaurus. But before we get into all of that, we'd like to thank some of our patrons. And this week, we'd like to thank Lucas and Eli, Wyatt, the Georges family, John Heck, Ranger Chris from Dino for Hire, Ray, Oliver E., Andrew and Helena Webb, Callum, Ricky, William, Red Sox Rex, Wouter, Moss Utah Raptor, Verosaraptor, Switchbreed, and Goji. And Goji joined a while ago, and we've just been failing to give them a shout out for quite a while. Sorry, Goji. We still appreciate you. Yes, we definitely do. And we appreciate everybody. Thank you for all your support. You're the reason we're in Australia for these last few weeks. And and able to go to SVP in Brisbane, which was amazing, and we learned so much. So thank you so much for being our listeners and for everything you do. And for those of you who might want to join this growing community, then check out our page. It's patreon.com slash inodino. And now we're going to move on to our first day of SVP coverage. And I should note that some of the talks don't allow tweeting or other broadcasting. (laughs) like podcasting because they're still in press or they have like sensitive information that's embargoed. So we can't cover every talk. And we also missed a few because there are only so many talks that two people can make it to since there are three going on pretty much constantly. But we still covered a ton on the first day. The first day was by far our busiest day. So kicking it off, there was a talk by Tegan Beveridge and they did their research in the Waweep formation in Southern Utah And basically what this resulted in, which is most interesting to us (laughs) as dinosaur enthusiasts, was a new age for Lythronax, which is the oldest North American Tyrannosauridae member, (laughs) or Tyrannosaurid perhaps. And they got to use the holotype, which I think might be the only individual. There aren't a whole lot of Lythronax running around. Well, I guess there are none. None of them. (laughs) But there are very many other fossils known. So previously... We thought that Lythronax kind of popped up in the fossil record when there was a global sea level drop, but 
with this new dating, it seems to have arrived 81 and a half million years ago or earlier. And that's too early to align with this drop in sea level. So maybe not <laughs> why Tyrannosaurids first showed up in North America. And Tegan mentioned that in the future, they want to look at other dinosaurs, including Diabloceratops, which will be the next one they check out. Another Utah dinosaur. Up next was a talk by Mel Wilkinson, who is a paleontologist doing a lot of work here in Australia, primarily in southwest Queensland, which is the area where we did part of our dinosaur road trip. Specifically, this talk was mostly talking about the area near Aromanga, which is where we just were. We're recording this podcast from Lightning Ridge, which is our next stop after <laughs> Aromanga. So we went from Brisbane up to Townsville, and then we went over to Winton via Huendon. And then after that, we went to Aramanga, and now we're in Lightning Ridge. All of those have dinosaur attractions that we'll be talking about. We have a lot of interviews and stuff coming up as well. You may have seen some posts on Instagram already. Yes. But back to Mel's talk. So they were talking about the diversity in Southwest Queensland and pointed out that it's mostly sauropods. They're from the Cenomanian. But the Winton Formation is really massive. This talk was the first time where I really saw the Winton Formation drawn out. And it's really about half of Australia is <laughs> the best way to describe it as the Winton Formation in some respect. So it's kind of, if you imagine a triangle and you're familiar with what Australia looks like, if you do one dot over at Ayers Rock, one at Winton, and one at Lightning Ridge, that's sort of the whole formation. So now you can see why our road trip basically started at Winton and now we're at Lightning Ridge because that's sort of the whole corner of the formation. Unfortunately, the Cenomanian was mostly aquatic. There was a giant inland sea in Australia, just like there was in North America, kind of cutting right through the middle of the country. And so it wasn't until about 90 million years ago, maybe 85 in that kind of range, when we start seeing dinosaurs all over the place because that's when the inland sea sort of dried up, sea level dropped, and then we had dinosaurs. Kind of like the last talk where we were talking about sea level changing. So Wilkinson, for this study, wanted to kind of nail down the Winton formation a little bit better. So they used a bunch of information from oil prospectors, I guess would be the term. People basically dating rock and trying to figure out where there might be oil deposits. And they do a lot of geology and actually hire a lot of paleontologists for this work. And what they found was that there was a greater than one kilometer thick section of the Winton formation all over the place. And it seemed like a lot of the time, a depth of 60 to 400 meters might have had around the same date. So it's really difficult to tell within the formation what exact date you're at. It's a little bit easier if you're in a local area, but even if you have things that are semi nearby that look like they were both buried in say like a crevasse splay where a river burst through the side of the bank and then buried everything in a massive flood, you could just have multiple events of that same thing happening. So it would look like these things were all buried at once, but they might not be unless they're really close together. So it's kind of difficult to tell what the exact dates of these animals came from. And because of that, we don't have really great dates for a lot of these Australian finds. They just kind of know it's in the ballpark of 90 million years ago, but they can't do too much better because the Winton formation is just so huge and difficult to date. Just a quick note too, we've learned a lot about the Winton formation through our road trip. And Australia right now is 
in some ways similar to the U.S. in the 1800s during the Bone Wars because there's so many new discoveries and new species being found and named. And it's really great. It's a really exciting time to be here. Although I will add that it is much more friendly than it was in the Bone Wars. People are much more collaborative and willing to share and talk about things. Yes, it's kind of like a modern gold rush for dinosaurs sort of thing rather than a Wild West craziness. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And to go along with that, a lot of the museums are either closed for massive renovations or are just expanding rapidly. I think about half of the museums we know about in Australia are either closed or just expanding in a huge way. So yeah, there's a ton of really good paleontology going on here, which is why SVP was here this year. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And why we decided to do a road trip. Yes. (laughs) Up next was a really cool talk by Dustin Stewart that was all about dinosaurs in Alaska. So apparently Alaska has basically the best record of polar dinosaurs and therefore high latitude dinosaurs in general. And a quick reminder, high latitudes means both near the North and South Pole. You just think of latitude numbers that are large, (laughs) whether or not it's North or South, because depending on if it's winter or summer, you have kind of similar environments in high latitudes. You need similar adaptations for cold and long periods without food, potentially if you're an herbivore, because plants might not be growing when it's dark out and things like that. So specifically, Stewart was looking at the Cantwell Formation, which is full of trace fossils. The whole formation is 45 kilometers by 135 kilometers. So we're talking about hundreds of square miles as well. This is obviously a massive formation. And he said, quote, we've barely begun to scratch the surface, end quote, at looking through all of this area to look for trace fossils. Probably literally too. Yes. <laughs> And the stratigraphy there is just crazy because, as you probably know, Alaska has a ton of faults. It's one of the most earthquake-prone areas in the world. And because of that, the formation is all bent and broken in all sorts of crazy directions and sticking up out of the ground and, you know, these ridiculous ways where you find footprints on sheer cliffs, (laughs) which looks crazy now, but, you know, it's been slowly shifting that way for millions of years. Yeah, the dinosaurs didn't walk up on buildings like Batman in that 1960s show. Where they're just walking normally and then turn the camera 90 degrees. (laughs) Yeah. I guess in a way they kind of did because they walked normally and then afterwards (laughs) it got adjusted to Uh, look like they were walking on a wall. Okay, okay. I guess in that sense. (laughs) So the trackways that Stuart was looking at used to be very near the North Pole. So much of the Cantwell is in Denali National Park. And the tracks that were first found in 2005... But since then, obviously, Denali National Park isn't as close to the North Pole. So along with the tracks getting broken up and stuck up on the side of cliffs, Alaska has also moved significantly south. So it's not quite as high latitude as it used to be. Because the formation was so crazy and broken up and moved all over the place, they actually use drones or quadcopters, whatever you want to call them, to take pictures of the area and do photogrammetry of the tracks. And I believe he said it was actually the first time someone's gotten approval to fly drones within Denali National Park, which is cool because I like flying drones too, but I don't have any good scientific reason most of the time. (laughs) But anyway, the main focus of the site was a place called the Coliseum, which is a 65 meter plus vertical section, which I don't know, that's something like 200 feet tall. 
and they dated it to about 69.3 plus or minus a million years. So we're talking really close to the end of dinosaurs. And in it, they found lots of ornithopods, both hand and foot prints. They also found a bunch of ceratopsid prints, a fairly large non-avian theropod track, which they said was about 25 by 27 centimeters, which means about a foot by a foot. It's kind of funny to measure feet and feet. But anyway, (laughs) they're guessing that it was a tyrannosaur that was about one meter of hip height. And they also found avian tracks, meaning like flying dinosaur tracks, as well as a bunch of quote-unquote didactyl deinonychosaur tracks. Those were really interesting because they saw them in the photogrammetry, although they completely missed them in person. So they were just looking through the photogrammetry and they're like, wait a second, there's this really obvious two-toed track there. And then they went back and looked at the non-photogrammetry picture and you can't see it at all. Hmm. So really photogrammetry can make stuff pop into focus that you don't notice with the naked eye because it does such a good job at bringing that three-dimensional view out. They also took some sill putty peels of some of the tracks, but obviously not of that Deinonychosaur because they didn't find it until afterwards. So this is obviously a super important area, which is just now starting to get explored a little bit, sort of like Australia. (laughs) So hopefully we'll hear more about what they find there and maybe we can eventually find some bones and figure out which specific dinosaurs were making these tracks. Up next, we heard a talk by Nathan Enriquez, And he was looking at tracks as well, but they were in Tyrant's Isle, as it's named, which is near Grand Prairie in Alberta, Canada. And if you're not familiar with where Grand Prairie is, it's quite far north in Alberta. It's where the Philip J. Curry Dinosaur Museum is that we drove up to a couple of years ago. And there's a lot of good dinosaur stuff there, but we haven't talked about Tyrant's Isle before. So it's over 120 tracks that have been found so far. They think there might be more there as well. Most of them seem to be from an Amontosaurus, despite it being called Tyrant's Isle. And they say that this might mean that Amontosaurus was the only Albertosaurus hadrosaur at the time. So if it's range stretched basically from the US border all the way up to Grand Prairie, which to be fair is only about halfway up the province, but I don't think we really have much dinosaur remains north of Grand Prairie. It would still be a really massive range for Edmontosaurus, though. And there are also eight larger theropod tracks, which are running parallel and are about 20 centimeters long. And then the reason it's called Tyrant's Isle is because there are what appear to be tyrannosaur tracks, which are up to 50 centimeters long, or about two feet, also on the island. I don't think there are as many of those, though. And they do range in size from 50 centimeters down to 30 centimeters. So they're not all huge prints. And they think that they're tyrannosaur tracks based on tyrannosaurs being the only very large theropods in North America at that time, which is the same time as the lower Horseshoe Canyon, which obviously is the one right by the border, which is where you find Edmontosaurus. And therefore the thing about Edmontosaurus being the only (laughs) hadrosaur in Alberta at the time. So maybe we'll be able to find some tyrannosaurs up in Northern Alberta as well. That'd be pretty exciting. It would. Everyone loves a new Tyrannosaur find. Following on theme with the footprint discussions, next up was Steve Gatesy, and he covered a set of tracks that were CT scanned in order to see what part of the step they were from. What part of the step? Yeah. So if you imagine you're walking in like a deep sand 
for example, and your foot kind of like sinks into it, and then your foot, you know, you lift your foot out of it, you could slice through many layers of that footstep and say the top eroded away and then got buried, the bottom part got buried again, that part can get fossilized. The same thing can happen all the way through the print. And just by looking at it, it's really hard to tell which layer of the footprint you're looking at. So whereas you might think, oh, this is a really shallow footprint, even though it's wide, it must have been a light animal because it didn't sink in very far. But it might be the case that you're really just looking at the bottom of a track and the top of it disappeared. And then even weirder is the concept we've talked about, especially from previous SVP talks, where a bird nowadays will step in mud, for example, and they had these slow-mo videos of I think guinea fowl or chickens or something walking in really thick mud. And when they step into it, it's almost like swimming. Their foot goes all the way into it, like up into like their ankle, which is quite a bit up their leg. And then they have to draw their foot out of the mud. Like your same thing as if you were like trudging along in a swamp, you know how your boot can get stuck because you're really just trying to yank your foot up out of the mud. Mm -hmm. So dinosaurs had to deal with that too. And when they did it, just like us, when their foot gets drawn back out of the muck, it leaves sort of a trail behind it. But you can't really see the trail because it's buried in the muck, but you can feel it because it's pulling on your boot as you walk out. And on top of that, it leaves a pretty small opening on the surface of the track. It almost just looks like a hole because it kind of re-collapses in on itself as you draw your foot out of that mucky goop. <laughs> so what Steve Gatesy and his team did is they CT scanned a whole bunch of different tracks from all sorts of different layers because you can't really tell all that well from the beginning. And they looked at the tracks in a CT scan to see basically how deep it was. And then you could also potentially tell how mushy the sediment is because just like with the boot getting stuck in the mud, if you CT scan a print, you can see these things that they say look like deep sea vents. I think they kind of do too, which are these little points that kind of stick up in the sediment, but inside the track. So you have to CT scan it so you can look inside the track three-dimensionally. And then you can see these little points where the sediment was stuck to the dinosaur's foot as it was pulling it up out of the mucky muck <laughs> and it sort of followed it up out of the track. It's really cool. And also with that, you can see other tracks where it's basically chopped off. So you, you're not getting the full deep sea vent. You only get like the bottom part of it. And in that case, you can tell, okay, I'm looking at a print that was laid down in really mucky sediment but I'm looking at a really low level of it. I'm not seeing the top of it. I'm not seeing the middle of it. I'm seeing so far down that it's like where the foot basically as far down as it sank into the mud and then just a little bit above that so that you can see a little bit of those points sticking up. And you can see anything in between too. So it's a really fascinating study and it could tell us so much more about dinosaur feet because you're actually seeing the pathway of their foot through the mud. You see like the whole trace of their foot going in, how the toes curled, and then how they drew their foot back up. So you can see potentially more information about how big the foot was with soft tissue on it because that's how it's disturbing the sediment. It's not just the bones going in, obviously, and what kind of flexibility their toes had, how far back they go when they're drawing them out. So really compelling talk. It built really nicely on the previous years that we've seen because we saw those slow-mo videos of the guinea fowl walking and then we saw some cool animations I think last year of just like the layer cake variety of it and how a single body can disturb them all 
at the same time as it falls through it. And now we're seeing that put to use on real fossils and actually learning some information about them. There was also a really good question asked by the audience, which was, what about speed? Can you tell how fast they were walking through the mud or through harder sediments? And what Gatesy said was, well, it hasn't been tested much and the range of step length overlaps at different substrates, as well as how fast they might go in stickier sediment, because they said maybe they were trying to get through it faster. So they might actually kind of speed up or take larger steps when they're in muck than if they're on regular dry land. So still an avenue to be pursued. Next up was Guillermo Navalone, who talked about using laser-stimulated fluorescence, or LSF, to look for evidence of aerodynamically significant patagium. And patagium is the skin membrane under wings. Yeah, basically connecting the bones because the feathers have to stick into something. And so they're looking at how it can help with flight. Yeah, so the evolution of birds, in other words. I think we've talked about laser-stimulated fluorescence, or LSF, before. And basically, it can reveal different soft tissue membranes that are just very faintly still there, preserved in the fossil, but you can't see with the naked eye. So you're kind of looking at it under different types of light. And then sometimes, I think with Ichi was one example, although that one you could even see with the naked eye because it was so well-preserved, you can see this membrane connecting the wing. And so... Maybe we can look at some early birds and see when they had big enough wings to actually do something. At the same time, Steve Porapat was talking about his work in the Aromanga Basin, and we actually have an interview with him later on where we go over his work. But to summarize what he talked about at SVP, basically, Ostrosaurus was collected right off the surface of the ground, essentially, because there's this really weird self-mulching soil that goes on in Western Australia, which basically squeezes stuff like fossils up out of the dirt slowly over time when it gets wet and then it dries out again. And there were quite a few finds over the last couple decades out near Winton and Aramanga, and they've nearly all been <laughs> of sauropods, which of course Sabrina is very excited about. Yep. We talked to many sauropod experts on this trip. Yes, we did. <laughs> and one of the things that was in a recent sauropod was a neck that includes cervical ribs, which are basically, don't think about ribs in your chest. These are in the neck. That's what the cervical part means. But it's ribs like reinforcement, you can think of it. So if you're familiar with, say, some of the stiff-tailed dinosaurs, some of them have ribs along their tail to sort of stiffen them up. These have them on their neck. And it's proposed that maybe sauropods had these to kind of deal with all that extra weight and mass of the neck. And we rarely see them preserved, but there is a new specimen that has them preserved. It's not been officially described yet, but there's all sorts of cool research that's going to come out of that. The specimen for now, though, is going by the nickname Judy. And as we found, pretty much every specimen in Australia has a nickname. Yeah, that's really funny. And then some of the other talks at SVP, they would say like, we don't have a cute nickname for this. So it's you know, X, Y, Z, one, two, three, four, five. <laughs> yep. Or in some cases on our road trip, we have to ask, oh, what kind of dinosaur is this again? Because it's referred to by its nickname. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Another cool thing that Steve mentioned was there were a couple sauropods walking together for about 40 meters, as he put it. And so they're basically parallel trackways. And then there's a smaller trackway that's going along with them and then appears to do a 360 
and then simultaneously it looks like a larger animal sort of skidded because there's like a little bit of a slide mark so what he proposed was maybe there was a small sauropod walking along with some big sauropods and the little one somehow got turned around and did a little 360 turn and the big sauropod had to like slam on the brakes so that it didn't end up trampling the little one. Oh, an example of a gentle giant type yeah. sauropod. But there are other examples of bones that were intentionally or unwittingly trampled. We have by no idea if they were intentional. Yeah. There's no way to know. Just throw that out there. <laughs> but sauropod bones with big sauropod footprints in them. <laughs> yeah. Well, they can't see everything. And in a lot of the cases, that animal was already dead. <laughs> it could be, yeah. I see this as an ongoing debate for <laughs> years to come. <laughs> Likely. Philip Mannion also had a talk right afterwards where he was talking about sauropods from the Winton Formation. And he's actually working together with Steve Porapat on some of this. Yes, they did a joint interview with us. Yeah, so you'll you'll hear more about this as well. But he talked about several other sauropods that have been found in the area, some of which will likely eventually be called new species. But one of them definitely won't because he says, quote, we're not going to name it because it's awful, <laughs> end quote, <laughs> which I appreciate because sometimes things get named when they have no business being named, but they're resisting the urge. It's looking like none of those sauropods are quite as big as the ones that you get down by Aramanga. These are all found closer to Winton, a little bit farther north in Queensland. Yeah, those are hard to beat because Aramanga has some of the top 10 largest sauropods in the world so far. Yeah, they're starting to rival the South American titanosaurs. Mm -hmm. Yeah, who knows? One day they might find one that's bigger than Patagotitan. Next up was a talk on the first dinosaur eggs and how soft they were, and that was done by... Matteo Fabri, who was presenting on behalf of Mark Norell. So the talk started with how crocodilians, hadrosaurs, sauropods, theropods, they probably each independently evolved hard-shelled eggs. Huh. And that could explain why Triassic and early Jurassic dinosaur eggs are not often preserved. Oh, because they're too soft to fossilize very often? Yes. So what they did was they tested the morphology, the chemistry... And quantitative, which is the framework. And they found that protoceratops had multiple layers, like a soft eggshell, and its chemical signature was different from sediments around it. And the same goes for Musaurus. So they analyzed epoxy resins, sediments, and other chemicals that are used in preparation of the fossil. And they found that the organic and chemical signatures were intrinsic to the layers in the fossil, so things that were there before the fossils were prepared. So based on the structures found in Protoceratops and Musaurus eggs, they determined that the first dinosaur egg was soft, and then there was later on independent evolution of mineralogic and calcitic eggs, the hard shell eggs that you see in crocodiles. Cool. We've been wondering for a long time where all those Triassic and early Jurassic dinosaur eggs might be, but sounds like... Maybe we won't find them because they're too soft, <laughs> unfortunately. There weren't very many talks about African dinosaurs, but there was a good one by Eric Gorsick where he talked about some titanosaur fossils from the Upper Cretaceous, also known as Late Cretaceous, Turkana Basin, which is in northwestern Kenya. The most interesting thing about it is it kind of 
helps us understand a little bit better which areas titanosaurs were closely related to one another. Because in the past, we've seen that Rapetosaurus, Shingopana, and Mansuosaurus are all kind of similar to European relatives, but those from Tanzania and Madagascar, so much farther south in Africa, look a lot more like South American titanosaurs. So there's this kind of northern titanosaurs look like European titanosaurs, but southern African titanosaurs look like South American titanosaurs. So it'd be good to know sort of where that split happens. And Kenya happens to be in between. And what they found was this new Kenyan titanosaur, which is just called KNMWT65086 because it's not from Australia, so it doesn't have a fun nickname, <laughs> seems to be a closer relative to Egypt than it does to Tanzania, and therefore likely closer related to European titanosaurs than the South American titanosaurs. So that split, if there is an even split, which there probably isn't because this is always really messy, would be a south of Kenya somewhere. So maybe there's some sort of latitudinal isolation happening somehow where the ones in Northern Africa are getting kind of stuck from going too far south and vice versa. But we need way more work done in Africa because it's still just only a couple puzzle pieces <laughs> that we have so far. Julia Clark talked about looking at how living animals make their colors and how that could help reconstruct extinct animals, colors like dinosaurs, potentially. But with the caveat, this is a really complex and not a one-to-one -one relationship. So there's a suggestion that there's a link between metabolism and melanosome diversity, which could be linked to colors. And flightless birds have a relatively low metabolism, and they also have a low melanosome diversity. So things like ostriches and emus, the ratites, have less melanosome diversity. And in general, they do appear to be a little less colorful than some other groups of birds. Yeah, so living birds, like the ones Garrett mentioned, that have these lower metabolisms have these interesting ways of making their black and brown color even, partly because of these physiological constraints. But again, this is very complex. So in general, it's just a correlation that animals with lower metabolisms tend to have less colors or less melanosomes? Yes. Interesting. Up next, or maybe at the same time, actually, <laughs> in the other room, was a talk by Haviv Avrahami, and he was talking about the Mussin-Touchit formation, which is in Utah, and in it they found two tibia and three femora, which means there's at least two individuals because there aren't any animals that have three femur. But these bones were very interesting because they had a high level of compacted coarse cancellous bone, or CCCB, which is often lost by the time that animals are adults, but some burrowing modern animals like badger, aardvark, and armadillo get increasing CCCB as they get older. They also think that this dinosaur that they found was an orodromian, or a relative of Oryctodromius, which was famously found in a burrow, so we know that it probably did some digging. And so there's a question of whether the CCCB found in Oryctodromius-like bones might be an indicator that it was using its limbs to dig. Unfortunately, sometimes CCCB is misidentified and telling which bones would have more CCCB is also kind of weird because it seems like 
It shows up in different parts of the animal. It can also be found in a lot of aquatic animals. And we're not exactly sure what the function is, even in modern burrowing animals. For example, if they have it in their hind limbs when they're only digging with their forelimbs or why they have it at all, it seems to make them potentially a little bit stronger or somehow more robust to digging. But there hasn't been a lot of research on this. But if we're going to understand Erichted Romeus better, we better figure it out because it seems like they have some of this bone. And it might help us identify which dinosaurs might have dug for their lunch or for their homes. <laughs> Sterling Nesbitt presented on behalf of Dana Cornizel um, what makes an exceptional fossil. And this was actually Dana's thesis. So they looked at the Therizinosaur Bapiosaurus, which has soft tissue and has been sampled histologically or cut up many times. And they've historically found blood cells in these histological samples. So what they did is they looked at all these structures histologically and cytological at the cellular level and biomolecularly. And if you look at it from a purely histological view, it is an excellent preservation. But they found that the blood cells were similar to those found in a fossil wood thin section that was found in the same locality. Oh, jeez. So they explored, okay, what gets preserved in these vessels and structures that are found in the bone and some of the wood? They used multiple electron microscope methods on the holotype, including gastralia and pieces of the surrounding matrix. On a biomolecular level, they found a higher abundance of silica and aluminum oxides, and this is in the clay component of it, and that matched what was found in the vessels. And basically, they didn't find any positive evidence that there were blood cells preserved. And these vessels were mostly filled with clay products. And so basically what it comes down to is that on a macro scale, this was a great preservation. But on a micro scale, there wasn't really anything unique about it, especially in the bones themselves. And he said, quote, exceptional skeletal fossils are not necessarily exceptional cytologically and chemically, end quote. So it looked really good under a light microscope when they sliced the thin section. But as soon as they started to analyze it with more powerful things and chemically, it just looked like everything else. Yep. <laughs> and up next was a talk by Justin Kitchener who is looking at some fossil femur fragments from an ornithopod in Lightning Ridge, which is where we are right now. <laughs> and as expected in Lightning Ridge, they were opalized. The really cool thing about them, though, is that they help identify whether or not some of the dinosaurs in Australia likely migrated because Lightning Ridge way back in the Cretaceous, was really close to the pole. Back then, Australia was still connected to Antarctica. So just like how Alaska was closer to the North Pole, Australia was closer to the South Pole. And it's been proposed that maybe these high latitude, close to the South Pole Australian dinosaurs might not have spent all that much time there and sort of migrated in just when the environment was right in the summer and everything was green and friendly. <laughs> but what they found with this dinosaur is that the one found in Lightning Ridge, appeared to be too young to have traveled much. In fact, it looks like the individual was less than a pound and likely perinatal, or in other words, basically a hatchling. Unfortunately, they couldn't find any lags in it, which, I mean, might make sense if it was nearly a hatchling. You wouldn't expect any because it's so young, but they can also be lost when a fossil gets opalized. So instead, they estimated the weight by basically looking at the size of the bone. 
So it looks like there were probably at least some dinosaurs in Lightning Ridge year-round. Cool. Back in talks about color, Aaron Dam Roy talked about how there's a lot of different ways to figure out or hypothesize the color of an animal. You can look at the melanosomes and the structures, also the chemistry and the diet of the animal. So there's a lot of different ways. But if you use just one of these frameworks, there's a lot of gaps. For example, there might be preservation gaps or just not enough context to know, or you need better statistical modeling. So he suggested combining all of these methods into one framework when it comes to reconstructing colors of dinosaurs and its close relatives. And he also advocated looking at non-destructive methods. August Hassler presented on work done in the Kemkem beds in Morocco and the Gadofawa deposits in Niger. Hopefully I didn't butcher that pronunciation too much. And basically they looked at the calcium isotopes in those dinosaurs. And they found that the predators there filled different ecological niches. So for example, spinosaurids there ate a lot of fish. Crocodilians ate a mix of fish and land animals. And theropods ate mostly land animals. And this method could be a promising tool for paleoecology and figuring out more about this sort of thing because it's microdestructive. It's resistant to diagenesis, which is where there's physical and chemical changes to the sediment and the rock. In other words, the bones start to just look like the surrounding area <laughs> soaking up the calcium, but in this case, it doesn't look like they do. Yes. And it's also efficient and it's a good quantitative method for inferring the diets of different animals. That's cool. Everyone's always wondering what dinosaurs ate what. <laughs> mm -hmm. Up next was a talk by Duncan, and they talked about some of the dinosaurs known from Victoria, the southernmost part of Australia, other than Tassie. <laughs> and we've talked a lot about the different ornithopods that have been found down there. There's Laelinosaurus and more recently Diluvicursor. But they pointed out that most of the dinosaurs there are known mostly from maxilla or dentary, except for Laelinosaurus is known just from a tail. So there might be some upcoming shifts in phylogeny there where the dinosaurs that are only known from tail might get synonymized because we're seeing mostly just the same four sort of maxilla and dentary all over the place. So it looks like maybe only four individual ornithopods were known from the area. Jingmei O'Connor did a talk about looking at probable reproductive tissues in stem birds using, using advanced microscopic methods. And it was a really good talk, but she spoke so fast because she had so much information to share that it was a little bit hard to keep up. <laughs> so they're looking at specimens with evidence of ovary preservation. So far, they've only analyzed one, but they've sampled basically every enantiorthine with reports of having ovaries so that they can have a better idea of how this all works with a larger sample. And they wanted to be sure that for this specimen, what they were looking at was an ovary, and you could tell for sure that this is a female. Because there have been skeptics who said that what was thought to be ovarian follicles were actually just seeds. Gut contents versus internal organs. Yes, exactly. Or some kind of plant material. But they did a whole bunch of different kinds of tests. And they also compared it to ovarian soft tissues and they sampled the ovary of a chicken. And they found that, yes, this is in fact an ovary. Awesome. 
And like modern birds, there's only one functional ovary. This is really cool because then potentially we'd be able to tell apart males and versus females definitively in some dinosaur specimens. Yeah. Imagine how handy it would be with T-Rex if we could figure out which ones were male and female because everyone's always wondering. Mm-hmm. Or maybe even hadrosaurs when they have the big crests. If you could see that the male ones had a larger crest but no ovary kind of thing. Oh, yeah. Takes some pretty remarkable preservation, though, to find ovary. <laughs> yes. Having powerful microscopes helps, too. Up next was a talk by Scott Hucknell, who is one of the hosts of SVP, and he also works pretty regularly with Aramanga and therefore their sauropods. So he was very busy during all of SVP. <laughs> yeah. We're hoping to talk to him soon. I think they're working on getting some publications through, but they have a big dinosaur named Cooper, and it's the largest single sauropod individual that's been described or publicly <laughs> known about to date because I don't think it's been formally described yet. There's also Zach, Tom, and Sid, which are smaller sauropods. But the most important thing about his talk is that he confirmed that sauropods trample each other. I don't know if that's the most important thing. I think it's pretty important. <laughs> he showed the fossils, which are basically sauropod bones with big sauropod footprints smashing into the bone. Garrett's taking great pleasure in <laughs> reporting this one. Yes. And it was all found near a sauropod trackway too. So it looks like really what was happening most likely is these sauropods were walking over and over again in the same route. At some point, a sauropod died there. Maybe it got buried even, and then a sauropod stepped where it had always been stepping. So it doesn't look like anything malicious. And then near Quilpy, which is a little ways away from Aramanga, they actually found many individual tracks walking in the same direction and many layers of that. So it looks like over and over again, they were walking in the same direction. And just like with Larkori, these are three-toed dinosaurs, so likely some kind of theropod or I guess maybe ornithopod too. Just something with three toes, not a sauropod. In the other room, Karen Chin was talking about coprolites, which we interviewed her and she went into much more detail about the things she talked about at SVP. So I'll just quickly mention here. Yeah, that interview will be in an upcoming episode. Yes. So there's this idea that she said, quote, eating is a really an inherently destructive activity, end quote. So you wouldn't expect organic materials to be preserved, but you can actually learn a lot from coprolites or coprolites. I've heard it pronounced both ways. And we'll talk more in detail with Karen Chin about everything to do with coprolites and the things you can learn from it. But just one quick kind of fun fact is most coprolites found are from carnivores. Up next, we heard from Yoshitsugu Kobayashi, and he presented on the dinosaur that he described, which is Kamuisaurus japonicus. And now I can be pretty confident in that pronunciation. And the especially fun thing about it is Kamuisaurus is that really complete hadrosaur that we had heard about in the news a bunch and then eventually got described and got its official name. And we talked about how Kamui is this god which is from Hokkaido. It's like a spirit known to Hokkaido. And the reason he said that he named it Kamuisaurus is because it's the god of Japanese dinosaurs. <laughs> That's it's, great. Yeah, it's supposed to be that it's so well-preserved. It's like the by far the best Japanese dinosaur. So they decided to name it Kamuisaurus as in like god dinosaur, which I think is fabulous. They also talked about a little bit of the analysis of the dinosaur. 
I mean, obviously it's nearly complete, most complete ever dinosaur from Japan. And they emphasize that several of the neural spines are pointed towards the head. So they're kind of curling forward a little bit. And they found at least nine lags, but they didn't see any EFS sort of indicating the end of the growth, but they used a fit line on the growth rings versus circumference, and it looks like it was about done growing. So it looks like this individual is nearly an adult, if not an adult, and it is the god of Japanese dinosaurs. <laughs> Pretty cool. Next up was a talk by Kang Yu Yu, and they talked about sort of using quote unquote deep learning in order to analyze CT scans, basically. So what happens is when you get a CT scan, it's really difficult to tell the difference between the surrounding matrix and the bone itself a lot of the time. But if you sort of use the AI power of modern computing technology, you can have the computer do a lot of the hard work of trying to suss out the difference between the rock matrix and the bone itself. And so what they did was they put in a bunch of data about ornithischian neonatal specimens some of which were from the Gobi Desert. Specifically, they started with protoceratopsians because there are so many specimens. And then they used something called UNET, Y-O-O-NET, <laughs> to train CT scans from an original quote-unquote ground truth image. And that's kind of the gold standard. So you put in your image and you say, this is the, what you're looking for. This is kind of an outline of the actual bone. And then the computer goes through all these other similar images and it starts to make predictions on the images of what part is the bone and what part might be the matrix. Based on the examples that they showed, it looked really promising and it looked like it might save a lot of painful hours of digging through CT data, trying to suss out the difference between bone and matrix. So in the future, who knows, maybe this will just be like a standard part of a CT scan because CT scans already involve a ton of computational work anyway. So maybe it'll also add in this extra layer of, and by the way, I'm pretty sure this is the part you're interested in, which would be really helpful, might make us a lot more efficient at getting through our CT scan data. Definitely. Yeah, it's always interesting to see the role that tech plays in paleontology. Yeah. I mean, we've been talking about laser fluorescence, all sorts of different micro CT scans, as well as electron microscopes and regular visible light with histology of doing the thin slices of bone and photogrammetry using drones. There's <laughs> a never ending list. Anything you can use to make your inferences go a little quicker and your conclusions a little sturdier might as well. Next up was a talk that we were both present for in a rare twist <laughs> by Carol Gee. And what they were looking at was basically which foods that are potential food sources for sauropods and other herbivorous dinosaurs would have been the most nutritious. And help them grow the fastest. Yes. So they used something called the Hohenheim feed evaluation test. And basically what you do is you put food, meaning basically plants in this case, and microbes basically bacteria, into a syringe, and then you see how much gas is created as the bacteria slowly consume the plant matter and therefore turn it into energy. And what they do is they use an exact correlation between the amount of gas that's created to the amount of energy that's produced. Therefore, the more gas production equals 
the more nutritious food. So you throw a whole bunch of different foods in these syringes, you let them sit for days or weeks or months or however long it takes for them to get digested, and then you see how much energy is maximally produced from these things. And obviously, we don't know what kind of bacteria were in dinosaur guts, but it would make sense that they would have something that would be effective at digesting the food they're eating. So it's kind of a best case for which food could be the most nutritious. Yeah. And so using this, she compiled what she called her Michelin star list for fully grown sauropods. <laughs> it was a little bit different for juveniles, but not too different. And the one that got five stars for best food, and this one was actually for both growing and fully grown sauropods, was equicetum, which are horsetails. And equicetum grew from the Jurassic to the Cretaceous, so it was there for all the sauropods. Mm-hmm. It grows really fast. It can regenerate in wet or moist, open or disturbed areas. And it was really easy to digest. So you can see why it gets five stars. Yeah, and it produces a lot of gas too. So it it not only produced a lot of gas, meaning that when it was digested, it released a lot of energy, but it produced that gas very quickly. So whereas some of them would take weeks in order to produce the full amount of gas, this one was more on the order of days. So you could imagine if you're a young sauropod and you have a smaller gut and you can't afford to wait around with the same food in your intestines for weeks and weeks, this food would give you a lot of energy pretty quickly. Yeah. And then on the other end of the spectrum, that got one star were cycads, which are considered the quintessential plants of the Jurassic. Yes. <laughs> which maybe that's why. They're all fossilizing because there's nothing around that wants to eat them. Yeah. It's kind of like a cactus where you have to be pretty specialized to want to bother with it. Yeah. Ginkgo got four stars. Some conifers got three stars and some ferns like Osmunda got two stars. And that's because today they grow in these dark, closed, dense forests. So they're not easily accessible if you're a really large sauropod, assuming it was the same. And of course, there's a big asterisk that even though these are the horsetails that are around today, Obviously, they were different species back in the Mesozoic, so we can't be 100% certain, but it does seem like cycads are pretty weak. <laughs> so depictions of dinosaurs loving cycads might not be great. But if it's the only food around and you're hungry, yep. who knows? Maybe they'd eat them anyway. Gotta be opportunistic. Yep. Up next was a talk by Ryan Merrick, and he was looking at basically how dinosaur necks evolved and or really bird necks it's interesting because bird necks are a lot like our arms so they use their necks in preening and all sorts of other things including diving pecking at wood if you're a woodpecker swimming <laughs> and basically you know anytime they're grabbing something a lot of times they're using their beak to do it and therefore their beak is like their hand and their neck is like their arm so it has to be used for all sorts of different behavior and they're interested in seeing how the muscles and bones are related with respect to this diversity, as well as do body mass and head mass and neck length relate to one another depending on their ecology or how they're using their heads. And basically what they ended up finding is that the top of the neck varies with how fast the prey is, in other words, fish, and the middle changes a little bit depending on how the bird flies, whether it's flapping really vigorously or not. And the base varies a little bit, whether it's carnivorous or herbivorous. But in general, the necks are pretty similar between the birds. So there's a lot of sort of convergent evolution happening where 
pretty much all birds have to cover the same spectrum. You know, they all need to preen. They all need to do all these different things with their neck. So they have a generally similar anatomy. And he mentioned the next step for further study is how and when did this avian, the bird neck, evolve? Yeah. And that's it for our first day of SVP. We didn't even talk about the posters. <laughs> we'll talk about that next episode because this one's already getting a little long with just, and that was all in the morning too, one morning of talks from SVP. But next time we'll talk about day two and all the posters that we saw. This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a Brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. <laughs> Good for us as scientists. <laughs> mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. And without further ado, we're going to go on to our interview with Dr. Thaisa Rodriguez. We're chatting today with Dr. Thaisa Rodriguez, who is from the Federal University of Espirito Santo in Brazil. <laughs> and I'm getting the thumbs up on pronunciation, so I'm very happy. <laughs> so, yeah, thanks for taking the time to at SVP, which is incredibly busy, <laughs> to talk with us. Sure, it's my pleasure. So we saw your poster yesterday, and it's about high schoolers making paleo art to teach them evolution. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Sure. Uh, the project started in 2016 with an idea to, you know, how to improve uh, science education. So uh, we worked with um, this state-run school. Uh, it's a public school. And in Brazil, normally public schools are for poor people, poor students. So they have a lot of activities they actually lack in relation to, you know, 
kids who come from uh, houses with you know, a larger income, for instance. So I got in touch with their science teacher to talk about ideas for projects. And, well, actually everyone, when we talk about paleontology, they think about dinosaurs. So mm -hmm. they wanted to go to the field work, you know, to collect, to excavate. And I was like, oh, sorry. I mean, in our state where we live, we don't have any uh, fossiliferous rocks. We do, but they are marine and, you know, we can't just go there. It's unreachable for us. Mm -hmm. So I was, okay, so we have to give them something to do. I really didn't want to make like a theoretical project because um, high schoolers don't like this. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we decided to do something with uh, paleo art. So um, it was a two-year project and we interviewed a lot of students and chose several of them who were interested for status 10. And um, we um, lectured them on paleontology. <laughs> That's the part they didn't like. <laughs> But then afterwards, they had something to start with, just to um, know how to find something, some, you know, some information online, and then actually start doing models. Yeah. So where in Brazil? Which state is this? A state called Espirito Santo, as in the name of the university. We're in the state just north of Rio. Mm -hmm. So it's also in the southeastern, and especially me, we live by the coast. So they're used to the ocean and, you know, everything, but they're not used to fossiliferous sites. Hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> so it was a... Uh Did you say it was a year-long program? It's two years. Oh, two-year program. So, yeah, it's a long time, especially for high schoolers, right? Mm -hmm. So um, they have so many other things in their minds. And especially this was, um, well, it was a state-run school, but it was a special one. Because it was a high school that's supposed to be a model no uh, for other schools in the state so it's um a school where they spend the whole day they arrive about seven uh, have breakfast and they they have lessons all day long mm -hmm. uh, during the mornings they have like science and math and all history you know. and then uh, during the afternoons they will do other activities like they can have um theater class or m music class or something like this so we wanted just to you know use this somewhat free time they had during the afternoons. Turns out, actually, all of them were already doing other activities. So we had you know, to come up with some other ideas to get them to actually work on our projects. Mm -hmm. I think you mentioned yesterday they had to come in on Saturdays. Yeah. yeah. So this is this was the deal. So um, we had two options, right? So we could stay a little bit longer after the class, but they were so tired. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I, I, I just felt We couldn't do it, especially at the beginning we did it because they, we wanted to teach them a little bit about, you know, um, the theoretical part of paleontology. We also had some exercises on art. So we had a student uh, from the university who was majoring in arts and she taught them how to draw things, how to draw animals. Mm -hmm. And that was pretty cool. But then it was not going to work for the later parts of the project because we were dealing with the models themselves to make things easier for them because, well, they are not artists, right? Uh, we decided to use cold porcelain. And cold porcelain is pretty good because um, you can just model it into different shapes. But after a few minutes, it starts to get harder. Oh, cool. So we couldn't just, you know, work for an hour or half an hour and then just stay um, stay like this for the next day just to continue the project. Mm -hmm. It was not possible. So we decided to work on Saturdays. So uh, I was... Um, 
bringing them to the university, well, that was part of the idea to get to know a university, a university lab, how things worked. They came to the universities on Saturdays. <laughs> yeah, I don't think they liked that very much, but... <laughs> but they still uh, made it. <laughs> they, they made it, yeah. I mean, um, it wasn't all Saturdays because I knew that was not feasible. Mm -hmm. So they would come Saturdays and we would stay all day there, you know, I'll just take them to eat something at McDonald's. They were super happy with that. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. So you did it at your university rather than at their high school. Yes, the idea from the beginning was to get the students to have some kind of experience inside the university. Hmm. Um, so they could, you know, just be challenged and um, really try to get into a university afterwards. Because as I said, these are kids from very poor backgrounds. So most for most of them, uh, going to a university is like a distant dream. Hmm. So we wanted them to, you know, get closer to, you know, the university is not like another world. It's totally fine. You belong here as well. I mean, the idea was to get them during the weekdays. Wasn't possible, so you know uh, we did our best. How close is your university to where their high school was? Oh gosh, <laughs> <laughs> it was. Um, I would take about um, twenty to thirty minutes by car. Oh, so it is not near. I mean, they would take a lot of time coming with the bus, and many of those kids they did not live near the school. It, mm. it doesn't work like the United States where you go to school near home. Some of them they uh, lived in another city. Oh, wow. Some of them needed like two hours in the bus to get to the to the school and then to the university. So they really put an effort. Yeah, they really wanted to be part of the program. Oh, yeah, because, uh, well, one of the things that really helped in this part uh, was getting them scholarships. Mm -hmm. So we paid them like $25 a month. And uh, for some of them, they never had a chance to have their own money. So mm -hmm. they were very, very excited. So this money was to help them, you know, take a bus and uh, have something to eat while they were working as well. Mm -hmm. So this really helped because, well, these are poor kids, most of them. So without this money, we can never get this project done. Yeah. yeah. Did you meet them like once or twice a month? Yes, about mm -hmm. once or twice. I mean, ideally twice a month. And then when they had vacations, we had no meetings at all because well, I totally get it. They don't want to see mm -hmm. my face anymore. <laughs> and um, yeah, when um, they had like tests and they had some very busy months, I decided just to have one meeting. But because the meetings were so long, we just have like ideals are we're going to reach um, like uh, these objectives we are going to do the review of all the animals you want to do and the other week we're going to do the whole model so you know um, if you are able to just reach all those points it's fine we don't need any more meetings if not that's happened so often uh, we need more meetings gotcha and, yeah so what was the kind of like overall curriculum that you were trying to teach um everything <laughs> from really they had a hard time knowing what a bivalve was they had a lot of difficulties with uh, biology mm -hmm. with science and there's a lot of things people don't teach you in school because yeah. well, our teachers don't have the time to to really go through all things from the curricula mm -hmm. so we wanted to teach them about evolution as well and that animals and plants they change over time mm -hmm. 
So that's really the idea. I am very well aware that um, learning deep time is not easy. And I don't think they really comprehend really well um, about deep time and uh, what a million year means or a hundred million years means. Mm -hmm. But they got to understand how the biotas keep changing. And um, that's something that they should learn by the end of the high school anyway. Mm -hmm. Cool. Yeah, that's that's uh, our approach. They learned by drawing and making animals. They made the animals. Um, they did. Uh, they did have some drawing lessons, and they all love it. But the idea was not to draw because it's hard. But when you model something, like if you have some putty, you know, you can just make some toys. You know, everyone does this as, as kids. So I decided that it was best to have something built on three D. Mm -hmm. So to say, so it wasn't going to be something large. No, I mean, the animals were a few centimeters long and that's all. But it was easier for them to model, like um, doing this scale models, smaller things, more simpler things than no, just doing a drawing. So this way we could just include kids that um, really didn't have any artistic abilities, but they just really, really wanted to be there. Yeah. Cool. So what were some of the key things you learned doing this over two years? Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there are many things. For starters, we... Um we began with a very diverse group of students from uh, different ages. And this really didn't help, actually, because some of them, they finished school during the project. So, you know, I had to get new students. Mm -hmm. and then the new students, they were very keen to learn. However, we had you know, more experienced students in the project and the new ones. So did, they didn't share the same level of experience, mm. not only about the dinosaurs themselves, but also how to deal with the materials we were work, working with just sticking to one group i mean um perhaps we're not going to be as diverse but we're going to have a more stability mm -hmm. and the second thing is that it's really hard to keep a group so of course many of uh, many students they moved cities and they finished high school but it's um, their realities are something we have to keep in mind mm -hmm. so even having this money for them every single month some of them still struggle they really really struggle many of those kids they are raised only by their moms mm -hmm. some of them were not raised by any parents like uh, they were raised by grandparents so even getting the you know, authorization to do all the stuff was hard sometimes. Mm -hmm. And uh, it is really, really important that we actually pay them for this work. It is a kind of work, right? And they're mm -hmm. working overtime. They are after school or mm -hmm. in their weekends. So actually paying them is really, really important. That's how we got them to stay in the group, mm -hmm. you know, and just keep kids from different backgrounds together. So that's really uh, interesting to, to learn. Yeah, mm -hmm. That's great. And so part of the, um, I guess, inspiration behind this is, with your, is your background, right? Uh, working at the... Yes, it is. <laughs> uh, uh, I did my master's and my PhD mm -hmm. at the National Museum Rio, which, you know, unfortunately caught fire last year. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And making exhibitions and working on exhibitions was a major deal within the museum, especially for us paleontologists. We had dinosaurs and pterosaurs all the time there. It was a, a part of our daily lives. Mm -hmm. So, um, I mean, it's not just me. Me and my other colleagues who also uh, studied at the museum, we all had this background with us. We want to outreach. 
Mm-hmm. Now we want to reach out. <laughs> we want to, you know, talk to people about paleontology and not just like as lectures. I already do my lectures. We can go beyond this and really uh, have people participating and do more stuff. That's great. So after the program, did you do you know if any of the students made it to university? Yes, actually. <laughs> um, two students, they actually decided to study gemology. Oh, wow. So, yeah, it's different, right? Yeah. Um, um, one of them was unexpected because I thought he wanted to be a lawyer of some sort. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then he decided to do gemology because one of the colleagues did, <laughs> uh, well, you know, influence. <laughs> and... Um, it was harder than he, than he expected, and um, but he's still, you know, sticking to the course. And the other one was a girl, and she um, loves art. Mm-hmm. She really wanted to go to the university and do something like related to art. Mm-hmm. She is fantastic. She loved the project every single time. At the beginning, I thought she was going for a major in art or something. But then she went, she went to gemology and I was, okay, that's great. So I actually taught her something. Yeah. I mean, it's like geology related, so mm-hmm. it's good enough. And uh, it's pretty, pretty interesting that they actually got into university. And I still think that, you know, there's still time. So perhaps this year, more students will get to university as well. Gotcha. Because yeah. they're not all done with high school yet. Yeah, not thought of them. Yes. Cool. Did you say gemology? Gemology, yeah. It's a course that's very rare in Brazil, actually. And they have in my university. So they get to study gems. Mm-hmm. So you have to, you know, draw jewelry. And you need to have some sort of artistic ability at the end of the day. Yeah. And it's also something that you can get a career out of this. Cool. Because there's always uh, someone who needs to identify uh, the worth or the value of games, you know, diamonds and Mm -hmm. other Mm -hmm. games, yes. Cool. Different, right? (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) but great to see the impact. Yeah, and you can definitely see the relation to what you did. Yeah, I know um, it's not only me because my colleagues from this course, they went to this school and they did like a small exhibition as well. Mm -hmm. So they were, you know, we that's why they decided to because we went our way there to the school to talk to them otherwise they will never know it i mean it's just another name on a long list of Mm -hmm. possibilities so you had like a few different people from different backgrounds explaining the careers and yeah well Mm -hmm. we do this sometimes normally people will go to our university and we do like a science fair and we just you know show around things but this time um the teachers they went to the school so it makes a whole lot of a difference. Mm. So they really immersed on the themes of this course and they really, really love it. Nice. Yeah, that's wonderful. So when you're not doing outreach, your focus is on pterosaurs. You, yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> Can you tell us, I know you've got a few posters on pterosaurs and are you giving a talk as well? Oh, no. Um, I, I, I gave a talk about something else oh. entirely <laughs> different from pterosaurs this time. Um, I had a poster from one of my students, one of my master's students. He did some work on some Jurassic pterosaur, mm-hmm. actually pterodactyls, and um he was doing more anatomical work, which we presented in a conference last year. And for this year, I was like, okay, what else can we say about those things? Are we only going to stick in morphology? Mm-hmm. And I, uh, I gave him the idea of discussing a little bit about ecological niches within pterosaurs. So he did something and we had a poster yesterday on the matter. 
Cool. Wonderful. And then what was your talk about if it was something oh, gosh. different? Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> so I was one of the organizers of the workshop Women in Paleontology. Oh, cool. So, yeah. So we had a, a great time. We had four hours only for ourselves. So we had a room full of people and we were talking about all the difficulties of having more women in paleontology and geosciences as a whole. Mm. So I introduced uh, the team and I had a talk about um, how can we keep women once they enter our field. Mm. So there's a lot of things that we have to improve, mm. like our network. Normally, men mostly collaborate with other men. So mm. we do need to improve those things because it really has a huge impact on so many things, not only on your papers, but also men normally invite other men to be reviewers, to be editors. There's data on those things, you mm -hmm. know. They normally give better recommendation letters for men as well, mm -hmm. like more uh, letters with more impact. Gotcha. So I talked a little bit about it, and a colleague of mine, she presented data on maternity, on science. Oh. So having a kid um, is a major step in life. Mm -hmm. And of course, it has a major impact on you and your career as well. Mm -hmm. So she talked a lot about it, and it was great. Afterwards, we had the second part of our workshop we also had other people talking about um stereotypes mm -hmm. so uh, from a very uh, young age we learned that um dinosaurs are for boys you know all this silly stuff so we talked about these things as well and we organized ourselves into smaller tables so we could discuss specific topics so yeah so it was a lot of work yeah. on the yeah, first I'm day sure. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds kind of like women are entering paleontology maybe after college but then they drop out is that kind it of the is issue? um so there's depending on on the country of course mm -hmm. in the geosciences and other stem areas they are dominated by men even uh in graduate undergraduate courses okay. mm -hmm. what happens is we still have more women undergraduates than full professors so what happens, you know, during all those years that they start dropping out? Because uh, if everything should be, you know, just the same amount of women entering paleontology and getting into to be, you know, senior researchers, this doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. So that's a major problem uh, we are discussing for the last few years. Well, we've been discussing those things forever, actually. <laughs> but in the last few years, since um, the Me Too movement just started, we are just um, more open for discussions and societies are more open for discussions as well. So why are there so few women who are senior authors or who are presenting here or what's going on? Why do I know so many women who dropped out of science altogether? They were fantastic researchers it's not about competence mm -hmm. it's about opportunities mm. so there are so many problems and we really need to have environments or working environments that are more welcoming to minorities not only women but well women were the focus of our workshop mm -hmm. well it sounds like a very successful svp for you <laughs> oh gosh yeah, i'm doing so many things this year yes <laughs> For our listeners, then, if they want to learn more about you and your work, where can they find you online? Oh, you can find me online on Twitter. Mm -hmm. So I'm at Paleotaisa. That's P-A-L-E-O-T-A-I-S-S-A. -S I'm super active. I tweet all day. Just drop me a line. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Wonderful. 
Well, thank you so much. Thank you so much for the invitation. Thanks again for the great interview. I always love hearing about different outreach programs. Yeah, that one sounds really effective, which is awesome. And now onto our dinosaur of the day, Coloradosaurus, which was a request from Tyrant King via our Patreon and Discord. So thank you. Coloradosaurus was a massospondylid sauropodomorph that lived in the late Triassic in what is now La Rioja province in Argentina in the Los Colorados formation. It was a basal sauropodomorph, and it was considered to be medium-sized and gracile. The type species is Coloradosaurus brevis, and the genus name means Colorado's lizard, and it was named after the Los Colorados formation where it was found. You may have guessed that. Originally, Jose Bonaparte named it Coloradia in 1978, but that name had already been given to a moth. (laughs) So it was named in 1983 by David Lambert. The holotype includes a nearly complete skull. A second specimen was described in 2012 by Cecilia Alpadetti and others. They found postcranial material, including parts of the vertebral column, pectoral girdle, incomplete forelimb, pelvis, and hind limb. That's not too bad. Mm-hmm. This second specimen was larger than the holotype and was probably a juvenile. The skull has some similarities to platyosaurid skulls, so Coloradosaurus is considered to be a massospondylid that through convergent evolution has some platyosaurid characteristics. It also has some similar characteristics to Lufungosaurus, which is a massospondylid from China from the early Jurassic. And we cover Lufungosaurus in episode 159, if you want to hear more about that. Yeah, that's one of the best known sauropodomorphs because there are a whole bunch of them known. And as a quick refresher, sauropodomorphs had long necks and short arms, forelimbs. They're probably bipedal. At least the early sauropodomorphs like massospondylids. So you think about something kind of like a cross between a theropod and a sauropod. (laughs) So like it's still bipedal, but it doesn't look like it would be very fast. And it has a long neck, but not long enough to do the really exciting brachiosaurus kind of reach. Yeah, well, this was a pretty early dinosaur. The other dinosaurs that lived in the same time and place as Coloradosaurus included Riojasaurus, Lesimosaurus, and Zupasaurus. And our fun fact of the day is that despite its name, Wintonatitan is not a titanosaur. It may be a basal titanosaur form, sort of titanosaur-ish, <laughs> but it might also just be some other type of sauropod. And you may have guessed, based on the name, it's an Australian dinosaur. Yeah, it means Winton Titan, and there's the Winton Formation and also the city of Winton, which it was found near. But like I said, it is from Winton, but not a titanosaur, so half of the name isn't really accurate. As several authors pointed out during their presentations at SVP. <laughs> but still a cool dinosaur. And that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on any new episodes. And if you want to join our awesome growing community, check out our page, patreon.com slash I Thanks again, and until next time. Good day.